Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. Here we like to give the listener lots of information on health that they can do on their own and be proactive in their health so they can be healthy, but not healthy in the terms of laboratory values. Those are based on 95% of the population, many of whom are very ill. We want optimal health. We want health that we can last, live a long time, happy, and well. So to do this further, today we have Nick Powell. He just wrote a book, Limitless, Unlock Your Hidden Energy and Tap into the Secrets of Peak Performance. He's been working on these issues very, uh, for a long time and has been consulting and helping others in these issues as well. So Nick is the founder of Stronger Self. He is a specialist in human optimization and performance and works with high-achieving entrepreneurs and senior leaders to enable them to put themselves first and take their personal and business performance to the next level. Nick's approach has been scientifically proven using the cutting-edge tools and techniques for the worlds of productivity, anti-aging, biohacking, and neuroscience, and thereby harnessing the exciting intersection between biology and technology. He's a certified coach by one of the leading human performance organizations, the Human Potential Institute. His website is www.strongerself.global. Yeah, global. His online community focuses on increasing performance and living a long and high-quality life. So, welcome, Nick. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me on your show. Great. So, what got you interested in this area? What, you know, how, how did your journey begin? That's a great question. So, I was around about the age of about 38, and... I just was really suffering with low energy levels. From my consulting career point of view, I was incredibly successful. And anybody looking at me from the outside in would have said, he's got a great family, he's got you know, enough money, he's got a lovely house, great career. But I was just crawling through every week and getting to the weekends and not having much energy and therefore not being present with my family. I was under a huge amount of stress. I was probably drinking far too much, particularly at the weekends. You know, I had a beer belly. Um, and I just felt as though this is just part of coming up around the age of 40. And then <clears throat> I think I heard on uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast about bulletproof coffee. I remember having my first cup of bulletproof coffee and it just felt as though it turned my brain back on. And then I went and found the Bulletproof Diet and lost a lot of weight on a ketogenic diet really, really quickly. And then just started looking at what else I, I could optimize in terms of my biology and my cognition to not only improve my health, but also improve my performance in my professional life and also my personal life. Great. So what do you think caused your feeling 
suboptimal. I mean, maybe most people feel this way and we think, oh, this is normal, but I don't want to think it is. And so what do you think, what would you think the reasons were that you were not feeling so well before you started to change? I think it was probably, I think a lot of it was down to diet. I was, I was eating, uh, you know, I know in the States you call it the standard American diet, but I think the standard British diet isn't that much different. You know, lots of yeah. processed foods, factory farmed meats. Um, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't abusing my body with the food that I was putting in it. I was, I was trying to eat sen- sensibly, but I wasn't really aware of the food choices I was making. And I was also under a huge amount of stress with work and then that then compounds your energy levels and then you end up in a a vicious circle, I think, Susan, where you don't make the right decisions because you're tired and you're stressed. I think for me, it was was a mixture of things. I don't think my sleep was really optimized. I don't think I was eating the right things. I didn't know how to recognize and manage stress. And I guess I was walking around, Susan, thinking... You know, I feel okay, um, but I didn't know any different, and I just felt as though, you know, that was my norm, and I didn't know what great really felt like. Well, I bet a lot of people share this. They probably think it's the new normal. So you're a great believer in biohacking? Yes, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of biohacking. It's... um. It's one of those terms that I know is becoming more and more popular now in the US, but certainly in Europe and particularly in the UK where people are quite cynical. The term the term's out there that hasn't quite caught on yet. Well, I understand that in some circles the word biohacking is going to be um, buried or censored. And by the way, when I was at MIT, we were doing hacks all the time. We were doing it probably half a century before Dave thought of it. Which, I mean, to us, a hack was a prank, and I was the queen of the pranks. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, okay, so what is biohacking? So I think lots of different people have got lots of different definitions around biohacking. I like to phrase biohacking as taking control of your own biology and energy levels and the environment around you in in order to give you a massive amount of energy and really great health. And I particularly like the area of biohacking, which combines the intersection of biology and technology. Okay. So is your approach that you just, you know, look at the different systems in the body and all the systems interact like a big symphony. So do you just take a biohack in each area like sleep and energy, et cetera, or do you look at what's the primary block and address it first and then go through the chain or a combination of those? I think it, I think it depends on where the clients act, really. I tend to work one-on-one with clients rather than in a group setting. So some clients really like to have data in order to make a decision. So having some blood work formed or having a gut microbiome test or getting them to track their sleep using something like an aura ring gives them the data from which it's really obvious they have to make 
changes. For others, it could be around habit formation that, for instance, you know, they really want to put in place a daily exercise routine or they want to put in place a daily meditation, but they really struggle to build the habit and build those things into their daily lives. Okay. In your book, you, measure, you mentioned that it's good to have energy all day. So what do you mean by all day energy? And why is managing energy important? Okay, uh, I think I think for me, all day energy is. I think lots of people, and I've been there. You have your lunch maybe midday, one o'clock, and then you get that energy crash that happens about ninety minutes after you've eaten, and then you go sort of further on through the afternoon, and you're looking at the clock, you know, waiting for work to end because you feel so tired. I really believe you should be able to end the day with as much energy as when you start the day. And I think that if you have got, you know, a good supply of energy, I think you're going to make better decisions, whether it be in your professional life or your personal life. You're not going to get cranky with your colleagues or your boss or your partner or your children. You're going to be operating from a point of view where you've got the energy in order to be able to do the right things and make the right decisions. And I think that's really important because I think when we have got low energy levels, we can quite quickly fall into bad habits. So what do you do to keep your energy at the same level so you can function to the best of your ability? Well, I think it's I think it's I think it's a whole suite of different things. And I think it's quite a holistic approach from you know, looking after yourself from a physical point of view. So, ensuring you put the right foods in your body that are right for you as an individual. Ensuring that you are getting good quality sleep. You know, quantity matters, but quality matters more. Uh, you know, ensuring that you're getting the right light at the right times of day and you're avoiding um, blue light at night, for example. You know, making sure that if you've got any nutrient deficiencies that you're taking the right supplements or you're eating the right foods to plug gaps in those nutrient deficiencies. I mean, I think, you know, the the chapter on the, the book Limitless uh, my book, Limitless, goes into 12 different strategies around how you can really increase your energy levels. And sometimes, you know, there are some very simple things like, you know, doing a meditation can give you a massive amount of clarity and energy in the morning. So can things like taking a cold shower. So for me, Susan, there are a number of different things that I work on with clients to help them really increase their energy levels. But I probably would say, if, if I had to single out two things that are probably the most important, I would say it's the fuel we put into our bodies and also it's the amount of sleep we get each evening. It sounds good. So um, what causes these dips in energy? Is that because our, if we eat sweets, the insulin goes up and then that pulls the sugar out of the body so then... So then that's the hour and a half after we eat a sugar load, we feel very tired. Is that one of the causes of the dips? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
you know, I think the the insulin spike and, you know, people commonly refer to it as, you know, you get this sugar spike and a sugar crash. I think that is probably the most common thing that people think about. I think the one thing that maybe people are not aware of as much is inflammation. Because when we eat a food that we are not designed to eat ourselves, we can get inflamed. And by inflamed, I mean you may well become bloated in the stomach. You may well start getting brain fog and you can't think clearly. If you end up with one of those two symptoms, the chances are you've either eaten something that you shouldn't have eaten or there's something in your environment. And that is a classic case of taking your energy away because your body's using your energy to try and fight the inflammation rather than giving you the energy for your cognitive functions. Okay. Yeah, inflammation, uh, we've mentioned a lot on this show. It's connected with, I mean, it can be the start of any disease process. Where the disease mm-hmm. shows up depends on our individual uh, vulnerabilities. So inflammation is intertwined with oxidative stress, intertwined with mitochondrial yeah. dysfunction, intertwined mm-hmm. with poor methylation, intertwined with uh, all sorts of difficulties. So you mentioned in your book, how do you tell if you're inflamed? So you mentioned bloating, and so what are some of the other symptoms? So sometimes, sometimes so um, so. Bloating, definitely. I think brain fog is another one. Sometimes it can be uh, a little bit more subtle. Uh, you don't really feel the brain fog. You don't really feel the bloating. But you just feel a little bit more, a bit puffy. <laughs> and I think one of the things I do that, that I think is incredibly effective is to weigh myself on a weighing scales every single morning because if my weight fluctuates by more than about a kilo, I can look back on my previous day and think, what did I eat that has made me inflamed? Because I haven't put a kilo of fat on. I haven't eaten a kilo of food that I haven't digested. Chances are my body's retaining water because I'm inflamed. So that's interesting. You say that, you know, weight fluctuation of more than a couple of pounds or a kilo um, is indicative of inflammation because I, I you know, because I see that all the time. I mean, you know, it varies mm-hmm. in how much fluid and when you've eliminated, et cetera. That's interesting. And when you talk about brain fog, that to me means that, I mean, that your brain, blood brain barrier is weakened. The blood brain barrier is a protective barrier that only allows things that are supposed to go into the brain and keeps all the toxins out. And that is very much interconnected with the gut barrier. We've talked a lot about the gut barrier, that if our gut is healthy, um, you know, it's a lot, you know, it's good because an unhealthy gut, uh, any food particle gets into the bloodstream, any protein that's not supposed to be there. We build antibodies against it, and these antibodies mistakenly go after parts of our body and leads to autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. So, but a leaky gut barrier is very much connected with a leaky brain barrier. And many times Mm -hmm. when we have brain fog, it means something got in there that doesn't belong there. Or it might be a sugar rush. I don't know. What other things cause brain fog? 
Well, I think we've, we have more mitochondria in our brain than anywhere else in our body. So I think in most of our cells, we have between one and 2,000 mitochondria. Uh, we can have 10,000 mitochondria in our brains. So I think what happens a lot is, is that when you eat something that creates a problem for the mitochondria because it's got a fairly high toxin load, you feel it more in your brain because there's more mitochondria there. And suddenly you feel, oh, my brain's not working quite as fast as it should be. Or you're just really struggling to think clearly. I think that's a, that's, that's a really clear sign. And I think sometimes, Susan, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an example of somebody who is maybe a little bit unusual in that if I eat uh, to, tomatoes, eggplants, uh, potatoes, anything that is of the nitrate family, I bloat quite badly and I get brain fog because I'm sensitive to the protein in these nitrate vegetable plants called lectins. So I think one in four people are sensitive to lectins to some degree. So the point here is that we're all very unique. So what may cause inflammation in me may not cause inflammation in somebody else and vice versa. There are, of course, some foods that generally will cause inflammation in everybody. But even, you know, supposed superfoods like tomatoes are not great for me, but that's probably a very personal thing to me. Okay. So, uh, wow. Uh, so, are these um, foods, you know, that cause problems to the mitochondria? Well, first of all, why don't you tell us what mitochondria are? So, mitochondria are the power plants in all of our cells. Well, in most of our cells. So, I think we have mitochondria in practically all of our cells, apart from the red blood cells. And what they do is they produce 85% of all of the energy in our bodies. So what we need to do is we need to do everything we possibly can to protect the mitochondria and everything we can possibly do to power the mitochondria up. So if you look after those, you're going to give yourself the best possible chance of really taking your energy levels to the next level up. Something else that the mitochondria do is they also signal to the cells when to live and when to die. So, you know, that's an incredibly important function. So you want your mitochondria to be as healthy as possible. Yes, it's important to signal them when to die because which they call apoptosis. Because if they don't die, you've just got these remnants. I mean, you've just got kind of a dysfunctional cell, which kind of is kind of crud that just kind of clogs up the body. We need to, it needs to be properly taken care of and given a good burial wherever they're supposed to go. So that's a very important function of the mitochondria. Now, you mentioned that the mitochondria of the brain, you know, might be related to brain fog with the ingestion of certain foods. So is that the same as a food sensitivity or is a food sensitivity a bigger thing that incorporates other reactions to food? I think, I think unfortunately these days we're, we're eating food with a very high toxin load. Well, most, most people are, you know, uh, you know, we're spraying our crops with glyphosate. You now we're feeding our factory farmed animals rubbish. And therefore, oh. I think our toxin loads now are much higher than they've ever been. 
And therefore, I think, aside from the food sensitivities, I think there are there are the toxins that are, as you mentioned, breaking through our gut barrier and making their way into all of our cells, including our brains, which is then causing the mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah, two of the main, two of the big culprits that will disrupt the blood-brain barrier and the intestinal barrier are glyphosate, which uh, Monsanto uh, loves to put with all the food. And in the U.S., we can't get food without glyphosate. It just doesn't Mm. happen. It's glyphosate in Cheerios, glyphosate in organic food. It's everywhere. So anyway, um, and and one interesting thing is that. Uh, the farmers in the U.S., I read an article, are demanding that if there's a trade deal with Britain, that the British people have to lower their food standards. <clears throat> it sounds like you're yeah. in trouble. <laughs> I did I did hear that, and with the whole Brexit mess that's going on between us and Europe currently, I think you know, one, one of the good things coming out of Europe at the moment is that there are a number of European countries that are actually pushing to ban glyphosate in Europe. Uh, now, but Trump just promulgated, country. Trump promulgated about a month or two ago, demanding that Europe accept GMOs or else. I don't know what else means. Maybe he'll tweet at you. I don't know. <laughs> well, I hope it, I hope it doesn't come to that because, um, you know, I think that we need to try and protect our food supplies. It doesn't matter where we're living in the world. You know, I think that I was reading, Susan, that, you know, a lot of the the soy that is produced in Asia now is also sprayed with glyphosate. So it just seems to be spreading everywhere at the moment. Yeah. I mean, the soy and the corn in the U.S. are 95% genetically modified, so we just can't eat them anymore. And a lot of papayas and a lot of other foods, it's going to be that we just can't eat anything anymore. And I think this impossible burger where you make a pretend burger in a lab, that's going to be a disaster. And I don't know why everybody's pushing that as a solution to the world's problems. According to the experts I've spoken to, if you want to help with global warming, you have farming, diverse farming with different crops and animals and, you know, just having the cycle work together rather than this huge monocrop farming. So if you want to look at um, at issues with climate control, I mean, you might want to think about, you know, having the animals in there because some people say that just large crop, monocrop is not the answer and it's going to put us in a bad way. Also, I remember a year ago in Britain, they had a TV show called The Embassy. And what is on it? The Americans are trying to talk the Brits into taking chlorinated chicken. And last year, when I talked to people, apparently every member of parliament has been approached by U.S. lobbyists. And there's more U.S. lobbyists in Europe than the U.S., I was told. So it sounds like somebody's got a plan for you folks. Buckle up your seatbelts. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, you know, we hear the standard American diet used a lot as a terminology. There's definitely a British standard diet, and I don't think it's that dissimilar. And I think that it's one of the reasons why I always make sure that I I buy organic vegetables. It's the reason why I always buy my meat from a farm where the animals are always grass-fed and grass-finished, which is really important because 
that's the only way I can really trust my, my food supply. And even when I've gone to a normal, high-quality butcher and I've asked them, is this meat grass-fed? And they go, yes. Is it grass-finished? And they go, oh, yes, of course it is. I look at the meat and I go, that is definitely not grass-fed, grass-finished, because as you will know, the meat looks very, very different. So I think, you know, you have to, unfortunately, these these days, you have to be really, really strict on exactly where your food comes from and be able to trace it back to the farm. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but glyphosate is everywhere. I mean, the Antarctic... Everybody's got it in their body. It's in all the organic food. So it's not a question of avoiding the glyphosate and GMO. It's just minimizing it. I mean, it's just like mm. not avoiding all this garbage that they're putting in our food. It's just minimizing it. What do we do to counteract it? So. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of my clients, Susan, feel a lot, lot better in themselves and their energy levels when they start to cut out uh, grains from their diet, when they start to take out dairy, when they start to take out sugar, processed food, and they start eating organic vegetables, they just see very, very quickly how the energy levels just go through the roof. Well, Jeffrey Smith's recent movie, I believe it's called Secret Ingredients, he had a lot of people that he interviewed that were very, very ill. They avoided the genetically modified foods, and the many people he interviewed got better. But this is the information that they don't really want people to know because Google is burying information on genetically modified foods. And I read an article, they're burying alternative treatments to cancer. My film, The Big Secret, which is about nutrition and, you know, certain things, uh, you know, toxins and stuff that is important to avoid and what we should be doing for our health, it was censored at the request of Congress. I mean, something's going on that we're going to have to work pretty hard if we want to get good health information and eat healthily. I Something's going more. on. Absolutely. I think, you know, and I think like everything, Susan, I think it all comes down to this big business, therefore that equals big money. Um, and therefore, you know, people want to you know, try and corner their part of the market, whether it be know, a big organization that's pushing hydrogenized vegetable oils through oh. the sugar industry, through the... Some of the worst. So these vegetable oils are so highly processed, and rapeseed oil or canola oil are very highly processed. It's actually a motor oil, and they're just pushing this stuff on us, and it's in our food. We need to ask before we eat anything that we see what's in it. Something that I've... Um, Something that I've really realized um, the last 18 months, Susan, is that you know I eat very clean at home because I can, because I can source my ingredients and cook everything from scratch. If I eat out in a restaurant, um, you know, I, I will wake up the next morning and step on the weighing scales and be anywhere between one and two kilos heavier. And I've eaten... I've eaten as clean as I can in that restaurant. I've even maybe even had a grass-fed steak. But there's just so many things in our food system now that I don't think even, you know, the restaurants really know exactly what's in that sauce or that packet. 
oh, they shouldn't be using a package. Dave Asprey said another way to check that if your food is something that's not good for you, if you feel, you know, afterwards that you need to pee and not much comes out, that's one of the signals he sees as an mm. indication that we ate something that's not good for us. Absolutely, and also if you... If you're able to measure your heartbeat, maybe using an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, you'll see your heart rate increase by about 16 or 17 beats per minute within 90 minutes of eating something that you shouldn't have eaten. Also, when they expose you to EMF, scientists have observed uh, the pulse goes up when they're in EMF and then it goes, get arrhythmias and goes down when the EMF is removed. So these are certain things that we can just keep track of in our body, our heart rate, the peeing, how we feel after something. I mean, Dave Asprey said you might feel bad. A couple, uh, you might not notice for a couple of days after eating something. But it's important to monitor what we eat. Now, also, you were talking about inflammation. So you, you think one of the best measures of inflammation is the SSCRP, which is a laboratory value? It is, yeah. I think that will, that, that will give you a point-in-time uh, measurement of, of how your how of how inflamed you are, but it is only a point in time, and I think that um, no, it's a it's, it's it's a good biomarker to monitor. But actually, I think if you start really getting in touch with your body, and I think one of the ways to do that is by having a meditation practice so that you become more aware of the present now, your environment around you, and actually also your own body, you start then noticing how you feel. And I always encourage clients to do something what I call intuitive eating. So after you've had a meal, just think about how you feel. And if you don't feel energized after that meal, there's probably something in the meal you shouldn't have eaten. And I think when when people start thinking about their food in that way, they're very quickly able to understand, okay, I don't feel great. I feel a bit off. So what was in that meal? I think and then over a period of time, they're then able to associate the things they eat with how they feel. What other biomarkers would you... Uh, suggest that people look at to kind of get a measure of what's going on in their body and how they're doing at the moment? I think there, there are so many biomarkers that you could track. I think I would probably just start with some of the basic ones um, and then build up from, from, from there. So I think some of the things that I found working with clients, Susan, is that Probably half of my clients have very low vitamin D levels. Um, you know, we're reasonably high in the Northern Hemisphere here in the UK. So I actually think we've lost our sun for the year now. So I don't think we get any more vitamin D from the sun until around about May. So I see people having very low vitamin D. D levels, and when they start supplementing with vitamin D, particularly in the winter, their energy levels go right up. And also, um, I see a lot of clients that have very low vitamin B12 levels. Um, I've actually got a genetic disposition that means that I don't recycle or process vitamin B12 well, um, so I have to supplement with B12. 
And I find those two things coming up time and time again. And when people address the vitamin D levels and their B12 levels, they get a big step increase in energy. Oh, that's good, because I know in your book you list several supplements to consider, but just to have two basic ones sounds like a, a good start. Um, so you mentioned lectins. that you, you, in particular, have problems with lectins. Can you explain what that is? So lectins are protein in plants, a particular type of plant called a nitride plant or nitride vegetable. And in the nitrate family, you have peppers, you have chilies, eggplants, uh, aubergines, tomatoes, potatoes. And the plant has this protein inside them to stop them being eaten by animals. It's, it's almost like their defense mechanism. Now, most humans have evolved to be able to tolerate lectins. Uh, one in four people have problems uh, eating nitrate vegetables because the lectins, the lectins create an inflammatory response within them. And I've been, I went 38 years without realizing, um, I just thought being bloated was normal and having stomach acid was normal. As soon as I took lectins out of my diet, I started feeling a lot, lot better. And, you know, even, even now when I may say, uh, you know, I think every now and again I go, I probably find the lectins now and I'll have something in maybe a tomato sauce. And within an hour after having it, I feel like dreadful. <laughs> so now I just, I, I'm just really strict now that I'll avoid anything that is in the nitrate family um, unless I really have to. But I, I guess my biggest weakness is probably um, an Indian curry. Um, but I don't tend mm. to have those too often any, anymore. Um, but that's, that's probably the only place now where I maybe treat myself and, and take the lectin hit. Now, so it sounds like uh, one of the things you would recommend to your clients is to kind of monitor how you feel with certain foods, you know, and then individually figure out what works for you and what versus what gets in the way of your body functioning well. But overall, I think you, uh, foods that generally we should eliminate, and I assume that means sugar, which depletes us of the minerals and I think is a great it's probably one of the main contributors to most of our diseases. Interestingly enough, the sugar industry got some memos where they tried to bribe Harvard to say that the fat was the problem of all the mm. health issues, which is how we got on this no-fat kick. But really, folks, I believe excess sugar, which you find in everything, is one of the main mm. culprits. Uh, other foods, I think, that it depends on the individuals. Uh, some people will swear gluten is a problem. Uh, you know, Thomas O'Brien will say that we just don't have the enzymes to digest it, so it's, you're not going to break it up to the individual amino acids, which means you've got some clump of protein, which is going to be a target for any, uh, any you know, it's going to create antibodies and slip over to attack our uh, organs as well. And other people have sensitivities to milk. I mean, in gluten, there's something called gluteomorphine, 
which is like uh, if you feel good, it's like if you take opiates. Same with milk is a caseomorphine, that you feel good and you might get addicted. So any processed food, I would assume that you'd recommend eliminating. Any vegetable oils, you know, oils other than maybe olive oil, coconut oil, avocado oil. What other foods that people would you recommend they would consider eliminating when they're starting on this journey? I would say... Um Two other things I would say. Uh, one I've mentioned already, and that's around factory farmed meat. Now, I think that you know, there is a massive vegan movement across the world that I think, I actually think is great because the reason I think it's great is because being vegan compared to a standard British diet or standard American diet is going to probably be better for you if you're eating organic vegetables. I think so, um, what, you know, but there is a better way to eat meat, and it's to not eat factory-farmed meat, but to basically eat half the amount of meat that you're eating, but spend twice as much. So, you know, you aren't actually spending any more on your meat because you're eating far higher quality meat. I think that's one thing that is really important. I think the second second thing is that most people would associate associate salmon as a superfood. And, you know, if we think about, you know, people think about Scotland and the salmon that comes from Scotland and the salmon jumping through the rivers, you know, Unfortunately, you know, in the UK, we cannot get wild salmon anymore because we've got so many factory farmed salmon places in the rivers, it's killing all the wild salmon. Um, and there's something that came out in the UK two years ago that was saying that we can no longer eat wild salmon that comes from the UK. We also can no longer eat wild salmon that comes from Scandinavia. The only thing we can get is farmed salmon. And Dr. Cola wrote that it's probably the most well, Joseph food P- in the world. Joseph Pisano, who we interviewed on the show, uh, he says the worst food you can eat anywhere is farmed salmon because it's got everything, yeah. including medications in it. And also, mm-hmm. some countries won't even take the American meat because we feed it antibiotics, hormones, uh, pesticides. Some countries won't even take some of our food. So, Brits, uh, when the food comes your way, be discriminating. Hopefully you can uh, speak at the marketplace. Um, that maybe that's mm-hmm. the way to be heard. But so many nutritionists recommend when they're starting on a journey with a client as to go on an elimination diet, and that generally there's a few things that they recommend just stopping right away, and that would be dairy products, gluten, I mean, um, some other things on the list as well um, that are, are create problems for a lot of people, but not necessarily everyone, and then they'd keep the person on that diet for a couple of months, and then they'd put one back, you know, and just watch for four days and see how the person reacts. Once again, this means observing our body and a reaction to the, what we put in it. So, anyway, any comments? Yeah, I think the, I think the elimination diet is excellent. And I, I think they all generally recommend the same thing to eliminate grains, dairy, 
sugar, processed food, soy, and anything that is lectin-based. And I think that is uh, that is basically the the premise of the bulletproof diet. It's the premise of um, the Walls Protocol. It's the premise around the autoimmune fix. And as you say, Susan, people do that for a period of time. They feel amazing and they start to slowly introduce some of the foods that we know aren't inflammatory. I think, though, there's probably, you know, keeping dairy and grains and sugar out of your diet is probably a really good thing to do because we know those three do create an inflammatory response in pretty much everybody. And also, I think they're based on an approach to either paleo or keto, where you certainly minimize the carbohydrate uh, intake, which will minimize the insulin spikes. Because you eat sugar, what happens is your insulin goes way up, and then that takes sugar out of the system, so things get more stabilized. But it's these insulin spikes that cause uh, a person to be resistant to insulin later on, and getting them on the path toward diabetes. And also these insulin spikes are highly inflammatory and a lot of oxidative stress, Mm -hmm. which also sets us on a bad pathway. So uh, it's important to, you know, find out more about the ketogenic diet, paleo diet, just basically minimizing uh, sugar hits. And if you have a little bit of sugar, best to have some protein or something with it so that you don't get as hard of a sugar spike. Any comments on the ketogenic diet or paleo or uh, approaching that, those two? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the keto diet. I'm a big fan of sort of ancestral principles, which is around paleo diet. I think, I think my comments of what I see with people making the most mistakes around those ways of living is that one, I think sometimes women have quite a hard time um, on a ketogenic diet and sometimes they need more starchy carbohydrates. I think that's that's one thing and I think the other mistake that people make is, is that they just feel as though they can overdo the protein and I think that what they need to think about is not having too much protein like an Atkins style diet that actually include a lot more healthy fats um, and yes, healthy, because healthy fats as a fuel source. Yes, because if you eat meat, a lot of protein, uh, it will tend to spike your insulin as well, but it won't do that as if you eat the fat with it. But if you're going to eat the fat, mm. that's where all the toxins are, it means you really need to have organic. Now, you mentioned some superfoods yeah. like sulforaphane, which is found in the cruciferous vegetables such as broccoli, Brussels sprouts, etc. And you say this has got wonderful pro- health benefits like immune stimulant, anti-inflammatory, increasing glutathione, supporting mm. the health, supporting the heart, cancer-fighting compounds, helps with cognitive issues. Uh, it sounds pretty good. And your other recommendation yeah. is polyphenols which are found in a lot of berries and dark chocolate. So tell us more about those, the superfoods. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think, you know, superfoods are in every single health magazine now, aren't they? You know, we've gone through the fad around kale and kale being a superfood. I think these two, these two compounds, you know, particularly polyphenols and sulforaphane, 
Um, I'll start with sulforaphane first. Basically, it definitely has all the benefits that you mentioned earlier. And I think the one thing that appeals to people a lot is around the sort of anti, anti-cancer fighting properties. It's one of those foods that you find in Brussels sprouts and broccoli, etc. But there is a way to get more of this in your diet and get a hundred times more than you get from broccoli. And that's by buying broccoli seeds and sprouting the broccoli seeds. So when you sprout broccoli seeds, you get a hundred times more sulforaphane than you get from normal broccoli. And it's great for sprinkling on on salads and in soups, etc. And then then with the polyphenols, what you want to try and do is try and get a much diverse colour in your vegetables as possible. So, you know, you know, probably the best source of polyphenols comes from coffee, but you could also get it from other sort of purple and dark vegetables and blueberries as well. And, you know, so I think there are lots of things that we can get from like, very natural food sources that really help to fuel our bodies. And actually, our, our bodies are amazing things. If we give it the right inputs, it's amazing what our bodies can do to actually fix what's going on inside us just through changing our diet and eating the right food. Well, other sources that you list as polyphenols are black currants, blueberries, coffee, dark chocolate, dark green veggies, fresh and dried herbs, green tea, olives, mm-hmm. pomegranates, red cabbage, red onion, and red wine. Uh, how do you sprout broccoli sprouts? So you just cut the tops off and put them in water? So you basically, you, you can actually buy um, a broccoli. If, you, if your listeners Google um, uh, broccoli sprouting. You you can actually buy like a uh, like a glass contraption that you put the broccoli sprouts in. So you, you put the broccoli seeds in, and then you fill it with water, and the water sort of trickles through and keeps the seeds moist. And then what will happen is the seeds then start sprouting, and it probably looks a bit like cress or watercress. <laughs> Um, and then you can harvest them. Um, so if you just Google how to sprout broccoli seeds, people, you, can, you can do them in jars or you can actually, actually buy custom-made. I wouldn't call it a device because it doesn't have a power source, but um, it's actually quite difficult to describe. It's, it's maybe like a, um, like a three-tier steamer-type contraption, but it has no electricity. So it's going to look like a chia pet. But where do yes, you get broccoli right. yeah, seeds? Yeah. Where do you get broccoli seeds? Do you just cut the tops off the broccoli? No, no. So um, I buy broccoli seeds um, uh, off the internet. Um, okay. I can give you the links. You can pop it in the show notes. I'm not sure if... I'm sure then um, for your U.S. listener, that they would be able to find an equivalent product from, from okay. the U.S. 
Well, we've only got about eight minutes left, so let's touch on sleep very briefly. Sleep's so important because we repair the body, we kind of eliminate toxins, we process emotions, we move memories from short-term to long-term. But what happens if we don't get enough sleep? That severely increases inflammation and oxidative stress and increases your risk for diabetes and Alzheimer's. It's one of the risk factors. So tell Mm. me what else happens if you don't get enough sleep. I think if you don't get enough sleep, you end up in a world of trouble, both from both from a health point of view, longer term, from an energy point of view. You know, you, you know, we've all had times, Susan, where we've had a really bad night's sleep for ever, ever reason. And just trying to function the next day is incredibly difficult. And I think that a bit like what, what we were saying about energy at the start, People, people no longer know what a great night's sleep feels like. They think their current sleeping pattern becomes normal. And also people tolerate having a bad night's sleep. And I think, you know, particularly for me working with some of my, some of my clients, pulling their health piece to one side, because that's the slightly longer term and it's a compounding issue, their performance in work and the personal life really, really suffers by having poor quality sleep. So how much sleep do we need? I never like to focus on the amount of sleep that we need. I like to focus on the quality of the sleep. So I always get my clients to track their sleep using something like an overring. And I work with them to make sure that they're having enough deep sleep and enough dream sleep every night. Now, some people will need uh, around about six hours sleep a night. Most people need around seven and a half hours a night. Some people who are maybe suffering from some health conditions or are maybe uh, processing toxins need longer. So maybe they, they might need nine hours sleep a night. What we do is we sleep in roughly 90-minute cycles. So you should always be looking to have four, five, or six cycles a night, either six, seven and a half, or nine hours, roughly. Everybody's cycle is like different. But for me, it's not about the amount of sleep you get. It's how, how much quality sleep that you're actually getting. So you wake up feeling fine or something. You mentioned in your book, I think if people get an average of less than eight hours sleep, there's a 12% increased risk to die within a six-year period? Yeah, so there was, there was, there was a study done of 1.1 million people, and it was done in the 80s, but they didn't have the computing power to process the data until a few years back. And when they processed the data, what they actually found was is that people who had five hours sleep a night actually had a higher mortality rate than people who sleep eight. And actually, the ideal amount of time to sleep was about six and a half hours a night, which basically blows out of the water the whole concept of we need eight hours sleep every night. 
And you mentioned in your book ways to hack sleep. Obviously, no caffeine after 2 p.m., sleep in a dark room, uh, you know, the blue glasses, I mean, the amber glasses to filter out the blue light, which you find in your TVs and computers, etc., because blue light interferes and stops the production of melatonin, which helps you sleep when melatonin goes down, cortisol goes up. Avoid electronic devices one hour before sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, have plenty of magnesium, no exercise two hours before sleep. You also recommend, you know, as a sleep tonic, two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, one tablespoon of honey, etc. And anyway, um, we're getting down to about the last four minutes or so. I would also like to point out something that was very interesting. As you recommended, that occasional exposures to cold makes you stronger, that it um, stimulates weight loss, helps the brown fat, uh, you know, increases norepinephrine, decreases depression mm-hmm. and inflammation, improves cognitions. So that's kind of interesting. So, you know, exposure to cold occasionally. But anyway, it's about three or four minutes left. What would you like to communicate to people that we didn't touch on and if you want to let people to know how to get a hold of you. Wonderful. Thank you, Susan. So I think that one of the things I would really encourage people who listen to your show to really think about is, you know, is to really keep an open mind and think of yourself as an N equals one experiment. Because what will work for you would not necessarily work for somebody else and vice versa. I have lots of clients who feel like meditation is a wonderful thing. Others really struggle. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for them. Some clients might take a smart drug or supplement and it has a massive impact. Others, it has no impact. So what I would encourage people to do is, is, to, is to keep an open mind and almost be your own experiment. You know, and, you know be careful be cautious, but just try things out. And if it works for you, brilliant. Even if it's placebo, if placebo works, brilliant. Because I think when you start taking responsibility for your own health, your own performance, amazing things start happening because you start finding the things that really, truly work for you. And if your audience would like to find out more, then... Um, they can pick up a copy of my book, Limitless, on, on Amazon. It's available there as a paperback and also as a Kindle. You just need to type in Limitless and my name, Nick Powell, and you should be able to find the book. Uh, you can find me on www.strongerself.global, where I write a blog on a lot of these topics. And I'm also, um, in the next few days, going to be launching my own podcast, which I hope you will be a guest on, Susan. And it's going to be oh, called... It. <laughs> Brilliant. It's going to be called um, Upgraded Executive. You can find that at www.upgradedexecutive.com. Well, there you have it, folks. It's very important. It's a very important message is we're individuals. It's not one size fits all. It's not, oh, you've got a statin deficiency, here's your statin. You've got a Prozac deficiency, here's your Prozac. It's looking at our body. What is our body trying to tell us? How does our body react to whatever we do to it? Minimizing stress and minimizing distress from unhealthy food choices and lifestyles. So it's an individual process that we need to monitor. It's just 
it's like an experiment. Uh, try this and see what happens. It's, as Nick said, it's an N of one. So it's very important. Uh, also keep looking for health information. There are some experts that are looking for alternative places that health information can be found since the powers are be are very busy censoring everything. Oh, and if we ask why they're censoring or domestic, if we answer that, we're called domestic terrorists. So anyway, it's very important to seek out health information, check out Nick's book and his blog, um, share this information with each other, share this with your physician and, and run all these ideas by him and make sure you're working with him. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Better-